John chapter 5. I, I feel like I've given like two sermons already, so I'll try to, try to keep this one uh, a little shorter. Um, 1 John chapter 5. It's, it's hard to believe that this is the last sermon in our Life Together series. Um, and we've, we've certainly been plowing through, but I hope it's been a blessing to you and an encouragement in your faith. Um, and today we're going to be looking uh, at the title of what I call You Are What You Love, and it's, it's uh, sort of taken from partially from a book that I read a, a little bit ago talking about the subject of idols. Um, I want to be, uh, begin before we get into the sermon and let you know that next week we'll be starting communion. It will be a communion Sunday. So be on the lookout, um, be on the lookout for uh, information regarding Communion Sunday, because that's going to certainly be a part of that. Um, and next week, we start another sermon series entitled The Summer in the Psalms, in which we'll go through uh, various psalms um, and apply it to our time today, and, uh, or the times that we live in today. And next week, we'll start with Psalm 23 as we look at the fact that the Lord is our shepherd and look at some shepherding themes through that. All right, at this time, let's turn our attention to God's word, and I want to read from 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 through 21. And before we, before we read the text, I, I want you to look at verse number 21. It says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And as we read... I want you to see how what John says from verse 13 down to verse 20 actually sets up that statement, because the statement seems somewhat abrupt, but it's not abrupt. It's actually very calculated by John, and what he does is before he talks about the negative in terms of what we should be doing, which is keeping ourselves from idols, he goes on and tells us how we do that in verse 13 down to verse number 20. So be on the lookout as we read this text. This is now the word of the Lord. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who, who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ." He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. 
And this is the word that will be preached unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, indeed, this is your word. Father, indeed, it will last forever. And Lord, right now, we need your word above all things. We need the power of your word. We need the majesty of your word. We need the grace of your word. We need your word to lodge deeply in our hearts to deal with the sin that is deeply embedded in our hearts. Father, thank you that your word provides this healing and this love, and thank you that your word provides exactly what we need. So now be with your people. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Again, I want you to look at verse number 21. It says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, if this seems a bit abrupt to you, it should. I mean, think about what all John has said up to this point in the letter. John has talked about the glories of the incarnate Christ. He said that he is the Son of God, the one who came to take away the sins of the world. John says that in Christ we have this power that's in us. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. John has told us that we are overcomers and if that we but trust and believe in Christ and confess our sins, he has promised to forgive us. John has told us that the love of God is the principal ethic by what all of us should live by, both love for God and love for our neighbor. Think about all of the wonderful, powerful, glorious things that are written in the book of 1 John. You expect John to have some kind of doxology. Now you expect at the end he would say something like, Now unto him who is great and majestic and powerful to you, convey wisdom and honor and glory to all his people. You expect him to end in doxology, but he doesn't. What does he do? He ends with four words, five in Greek. Keep yourselves from idols. And the question then is, why would John do this? And here's why. The single greatest threat to our worship, the single greatest threat to your relationship with God is idols. It's idols. Now, some of you might be like, well, Pastor Dennis, what's an idol? Right? Because we all kind of think we know what an idol is. But I love uh, the definition that Martin Lloyd-Jones gives, because I think it's so valuable. He says this, an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. And I love the fact that he says that an idol is something that takes the place of God that only God should occupy. God alone should have that place. Because here's why. When we think of idols... We think of something fashioned by hand, right? Like the children of Israel who said, hey, give us a God that we might worship. And so we think that idolatry is just like fashioning some kind of wood or some kind of stone or some kind of metal, and we have it in our corner, and we bow down and worship it. Now, thankfully, nobody has that in their homes, right? There's there's not a corner in your house where there's an idol. Um, Not all of you shook your head no, and that's uh, somewhat concerning, but... um, but hopefully nobody, nobody has, a, has like an altar in the back of your home uh, where you burned offering uh, to some weird god, right? Hopefully that's not the case. And, and that's not the kind of idolatry that John has in mind, actually. Because, because I think Martin Lloyd-Jones put his finger on it. 
God alone. Because for us in this room, we're not going to go home and worship some little, some little idol that we have on the side of the corner. For us, the temptation is religious syncretism. Where it's the fact that we worship God, yes, we believe in God, yes, but there's something else that has place in our life. And what, what, what Lloyd-Jones is saying is this, that God is interested not in 99% of you or 99.99% of you. God is interested in all of you. That he alone should have the dominion and place in your life and in your mind and your heart. In fact, what's the greatest commandment? Thou shall love the Lord your God with all your, all your heart, mind, and soul. All of you. Not part of you. Not a portion of you. Not just on Sundays, but every day, 24 hours, relentlessly and consistently, there's a place that belongs in your heart completely for God. He's worthy of your entire and full devotion. That's what John is saying. Now the question is, how is it that we can keep yourselves from idol? So, well, that's what verse 13 through 20 tells us. And I want to show you three things. First of all, we keep ourselves from, idol, um, from idols by having intimacy with God, by desiring the best for others, and by savoring what Christ has done for us. First of all, intimacy with God. Notice verse number 13 through 15. John writes this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his name, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we ask of him. Notice the first thing I want to show you is the interplay between our uh, knowledge and um, the fact that we have or what we have. In other words, the security. The interplay between knowledge and security. Over and over again, notice the juxtaposition between what we know and what we have. Verse number 13, because we know him, we have eternal life. That's what we have. Notice in verse number 14, because we know him, we have confidence in him. Notice verse number 15, because we know him, we know that he hears us and we have what we ask. Over and over, there's this interplay between what we know and what we have. And the question is, why does John do that? Because this is the language of intimacy. If you know someone well, if you are in relationship with someone, if you, if you have spent time communing with someone, then you have certain privileges with them. For us, uh, because we know God and we're in communion with God, we have forever communion with God. We have promised forever communion with God because we have eternal life. We can be with God forever. Because we commune with God, we have confidence and complete reliance on who God is. Because we know and believe in God, He hears us. And God is sensitive to our thoughts and our desires. What we have because we know God is sweet communion with God. And that prevents us from uh, engaging in idolatry. Because idolatry inherently separates us from God. When we have other idols, when we chase after other things, this breaks sweet communion with God. And beloved, it tears at the heart of God as well when our tension is divided. 
Let me explain it this way. I, I had a friend many years ago, and he was in a relationship with a young lady, and it was not a godly relationship at all. But he loved her. He wanted to marry her. He was all in. I remember one day he came and he knocked on my door, and I mean, he was just weeping. He was crying. I said, man, come in. What's going on? And he says, Dennis, it's horrible. He said, she came to my door and said that she still wants to be in a relationship, but she wants to start seeing other people. I was like, what? He said, oh, yeah. And you know, over the next few months, he became an emotional and physical wreck. Because this girl who he loved and cared so deeply about started going out with other men. She started getting flowers from other men. He had to see her drive around town with other people and date other people. He had to watch this person that he loves deeply chase around other things. You know, beloved, imagine if that's the case in your own relationship with your spouse. Think of how devastating it would be to know and to see your spouse chase after someone else. And who knows, there's some of you inside here today have experienced that, either through the pain of divorce or another relationship. Think about what it means for you to see your spouse, someone who you love deeply, chase after other loves. That feeling that you have is the same feeling that God has when he sees your heart and mind divided into other things. God is grieved when he sees his people chasing after money. God is grieved when he sees other people chasing after lust. God is grieved when he sees his people not giving him the honor and the worship that he deserves. Can I say this too? God is grieved when we chase after the things of this world, whether they be sports or hunting. It doesn't matter what it is. When we put things before the Lord, God is absolutely and positively grieved by that. And that's in the scriptures. Think of Jeremiah and Hosea, how both of those prophets talk over and over and over again about how God is grieved by, uh, grieved by the idolatry of his people, how God's people sometimes have different lovers. And beloved, as James K. Smith said in his book, You Are What You Love, he says this, if we start with the premise that humans are lovers, then we need to guard our hearts from having many lovers. And so I ask you today, are you guarding your heart from other lovers? You know, whenever I do um, premarital counseling, I always tell the, the young lovers that are before me, you know, they're, they're so excited and it's like so fresh and new. And they're so in love with one another and they're holding each other's hands and, you know, giving each other butterfly kisses and all this stuff. And, and, and the very first thing sometimes I say to them, I said, listen, you need to be careful that you don't turn each other into an idol. Yes, I know you love this person. You'll do anything for them. But you know what? They're not your idol. They're not your God. And you need to be careful about turning your spouse into an idol because God has no rivals. God will not allow your attention to be diverted from him. He wants all of you, 
or he wants none of you. And if he has to remove by a severe mercy that idol from your life, he will. He will. And so, beloved, even as we think about the good things in our life, our spouse, our children, relationships that we have, those relationships ought not to crowd out our relationship with God. Our devotion and our time ought to be consistently and thoroughly toward the God of heaven. Now hear me. In Zechariah 13.2, Zechariah the prophet says this, says that one day the Lord of hosts will cut off the names of all the idols in the land so that they will be remembered no more. Isn't it a glorious thing that God has promised that all the idols in our lives will be done away with? That there will come in a day that God will gloriously smash the idol of over-sexualization? That we don't have to worry about people being gripped in the jaws of pornography anymore because God says, listen, I'm going to smash that idol. And we'll be in a place where we don't have to worry about uh, people engaging in pornography or cheating on one another. My goodness, I'm looking forward to the day when God smashed the idol of politics. That we don't have to worry about who's in the White House. That we don't have to pull out our hairs, those of us that have hair. Um, that we don't, have to, we don't have to go to that extreme and worry about who we're voting for and defending bad people. Because God will be reigning so everyone can see. And can I pause for a little bit? Let me get on my soapbox for a moment. Listen, you're a Christian first before you're a Democrat or Republican. And you are not obligated to defend anyone unless his name is Jesus Christ. So here's the thing. It matters not to me who's in the White House come September or October, whenever they make the switch over. Because King Jesus rules my life, and he should rule your life. And it doesn't matter who's in the White House, because King Jesus is in his house. And I'm thankful that one day the idol of politics will be smashed forever. And we'll be reigning with King Jesus. You know what else I'm going to be excited about? When the idol of consumerism is gone. Man, I hate spending money. But there's so much stuff to spend money on. I always feel guilty. I was like, man, I could be giving this money to missionaries. <sighs> man, I'm going to be excited when I don't have to spend money anymore. When I don't have to worry about it. Right? All that pressure to work and buy stuff. All the pressure to give people stuff. I told my kids the other day, I walked into my house, you know, they, they have more toys in, in the downstairs than I had at the corner shop where I was growing up. And I'm like, what is this? What is going on? Right? But man, God one day will smash the idol of consumerism. And I need you all, you all ought to be praying that right now God begins to smash the idols in your own heart because he will have no rivals. He'll have no rivals. Second thing I want to show you is desire for the best of others. Notice with me in verse 16 through 17. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit the sin that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that you should pray for it. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, what is John talking about here? 
Well, he's talking about desiring the best for others through prayer. We ought to ask God uh, for the needs of others. Specifically here, John says this, that we have this privilege, that we have this power, that if what we ask God, he has promised to give us. Now, some of you, some have used this text to say, uh, you know what, this is name it and claim it. Hey, you want a Mercedes Benz? Just ask God, he'll give it to you. You want a bigger home? Ask God and he'll give it to you. Kids, you want more toys? Ask God and he'll give it to you. That's not what these verses are saying. In fact, it's actually saying the opposite. God says that since you have the power and the privilege before him that whatever you pray for, he will give it to you, guess what you need to do with that power and privilege? Pray for others. Specifically, how should we be praying for others? Pray for their sin. Pray that people don't fall into idolatry and the power of sin. You know, in our society today, everyone's talking about privilege. Privilege is a bad thing. Well, privilege could be bad if you're selfish with it. If you use this power of prayer and all you do is pray for your needs and you don't use it to pray for others, of course it's bad. But privilege could be a good thing if you use it to help others. And John is saying that we have this power and this privilege. What, are we, what should we be doing with it? We should be praying for others who are sinning. Now, what does John mean when he talks about the sin that leads to death and the sin that doesn't lead to death? Well, he's talking about unbelief. Pray that people are not gripped in the power of unbelief. That's the sin that leads to death, being unrepentant of, this, of your sin. Pray that people confess their sins and forsake their sins. John says that we ought to do that. And John says we ought to be passionate about that. We ought to be passionately praying for those who do not know the Lord and their salvation. One of the most gripping scenes in the Bible takes place in Acts 17, 16 through 34. And Paul, um, he gets chased out of Thessalonica, right? And, and they put him on a boat and he goes to, to Athens and he's waiting for Timothy and Silas. And as he begins to walk around, he noticed that the city was filled with idols. Everywhere he went, there was idols. He saw little children playing with idols. He saw food that, that were being given to idols and people were starving in the streets. He saw money being thrown to idols and people need that money just to live. He saw pregnant women uh, going and praying to idols that they might have a good pregnancy. He, everywhere he looked, he saw idols and the Bible said what? He was grieved. He was profoundly grieved. Why was he grieved? Because the whole, everywhere he looked, was just overcome by idols. And instead of berating these people, instead of being frustrated at these people, he was grieved that everywhere he looked, there was idols. And the first thing that Paul did was Paul went into the Agora and started saying, this is wrong. These people need to know Christ. These people need to know who the Lord is. Beloved, when we're truly grieved by the idols in our lives, that should spur us to do something about it. Hey, you know what? What are you grieved about? You know, Tim Keller in his book, um, 
on, on idols, counterfeit God, said this. You want to know what the idols in your heart is? What do you grieve over? What do you daydream about? What do you, Tim Keller says, what do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort in the privacy of your own heart? What do you spend your money on? What do you get upset about and frustrated and angry about? You know, if I was to do a taxonomy of your emotions and your heart, would I walk away thinking you're a Christian or an idolater? The fact of the matter is, what we say doesn't always match up in what we actually believe. And the reality is that if you were to do a taxonomy of our heart, you'll walk away with the notion of what your idols are. Is it God? Are you more grieved about what's on Fox News or CNN? Are you more grieved about your favorite teams, whether they won or lost? Are we more grieved about personal insults than we are about people not knowing Christ? You know, I was in, um, when I was in Mississippi, I was uh, preaching at a church, Gerald's Father's Church, and there was, a, there was a woman there, and every time I sat up to preach, stand up to preach, she would walk out. And I was like, this is odd, but, you know, she probably has an appointment. And after this happened a few times, um, I told Gerald's father, um, I told him about it. I said, you know, that, that's the only odd thing I've seen in the service a couple of times I've preached. And he said, oh, Dennis, I'm sorry about that. But this woman, she, um, she struggles with racism, and she just can't deal with the fact that a black man is preaching to her. And in that moment, I wasn't angry that she would get up out of the service and didn't want to hear me preach. I wasn't. I was more grieved about the fact that she would deny herself the means of grace. See, let me, let me explain to you something. It's not about you. It's about Christ. And the problem in our country today is people are so wrapped up in their blackness or their whiteness or their politics or what they do for a living, or where they live, or who they are. And they're not wrapped up in Christ. Because they're idolaters. Listen, as Christians, we ought to be leading the way in our country to show people that worship of the living God matters. And the only way that's going to happen is that if we cast off the idols in our hearts and hold firm to Christ and Christ alone. Christ alone. I want us to look at the third thing, and that's savoring what Christ has done for us. That's how we can keep our hearts from idols. Look at verse number 18 and 20. Notice all the things that Christ has protected us and done for us. First of all, verse number 18 it says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep sinning. Why? But he who is born of God, Christ, protects him. That's what Christ does for you. He's your protector. What does he protect you from? The evil one. The devil. What does Christ protect you from? Look at verse number 19. The whole world that lies in the power of the evil one. 
What does Christ protect you from? Go back to verse number 18. From yourself so you do not keep on sinning. Because sin has a corrupting influence in your life. Beloved, that's the glories of Christ, that he is there to protect us. And then notice in verse number 20, he's there to draw us into relationship with God and give us the knowledge to come to be more like him. He says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we might know him who is true. And we are in him. That language of in him means that we are pursuing Christ and becoming like him which is the Son, Jesus Christ. That God has given you the ability to become like Him. Why? Because in an essence, you do become what you worship. G.K. Beale in his book, We Become What We Worship, gives this truth, and I think it's glorious. We'll end with this. Notice what G.K. Beale says. People resemble what they revere, either for ruin or restoration. God has made all people to reflect to be imaging beings. People will always reflect something, whether it be God's character or some feature of the world. If people are committed to God, they will become like Him. If they are committed to something other than God, they will become like that thing, always spiritually inanimate and empty, lifeless and vain aspects of creation to which they have committed themselves. Notice what Beale says. That whatever you love, that whatever you pursue, you will become like it. And anything that is not Christ, beloved, you will become lifeless, you will become empty, and you will become putrid. Because only Jesus Christ gives life and hope and joy. My prayer is that all of us will say with William Cooper, the great songwriter says, The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from your throne and worship only thee. So shall my walk be close with God, calm and serene my frame, so pure light shall mark the road that leads to the Lamb and the glorious name. Father, we thank you. Help us indeed to keep ourselves from idols. Father, we um, as a people must be vigilant to root the idols out of our hearts. Lord, there's no, nothing in the world more sweeter and precious and whole. As the ancient theologians would say, you are the ends perfectissimum, the most holy, perfect being imaginable. Help us never to forget that. Help us to cast off the idols of our heart and hold firmly to you. In Jesus' name, amen.